Welcome to a history of violence. I have a cold, so I hope and pray that I don't sound like Ben Shapiro today. Benjamin Franklin, remarking on the coming end of the American Revolutionary War, said that there was never a good war or a bad peace. This aphorism chimes with our instinctual reflex to seek peace and informs the work of international peace-building organisations. A cessation to violence is always a priority when addressing armed conflict, with disarmament, demobilisation and reintegration programmes building on an initial ceasefire. However, not every peace is equal, and some ceasefires simply redistribute rather than prevent violence. This is particularly true in cases of civil war, where a temporary political settlement is unlikely to address the root causes of violence. Some post-conflict societies actually experience higher rates of violence than during wartime, including Guatemala and the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is therefore worth examining the potential consequences of a bad, or at least poorly executed, peace. While peace deals generally succeed in reducing direct political violence in the short term, they rarely signal the end of insecurity and conflict. The reoccurrence of civil wars has become the dominant mode of conflict since the 1970s, with 90% of conflicts in the 21st century happening in a country which has already experienced a civil war. Conflict recurrence is more likely when there has been a negotiated settlement of some sort, with peace deals often failing to take hold. Some have argued that unresolved ethnic tension is a major contributing factor here, with peace deals often papering over deep-rooted divisions. The repeated rounds of conflict in Congo Brazzaville would bear this out. However, repeated conflicts often break out over strictly ideological divisions as well, such as in the conflict between the Colombian government and FARC. The problem is primarily that peace deals do not solve the underlying issues and simply represent the institutionalisation of a ceasefire with the continuation of an unfair political or economic structure. Peace deals can even reinforce inequity if they are asymmetrical in their implementation. For example, the peace deal in the Republic of Congo Brazzaville saw the victorious President Sassau persuade his opponents to demobilise their private militias while he simply integrated his into the official armed forces. This allowed his government to um, derail democratisation attempts and institutionalise power along their preferred ethnic and political lines. This meant that state violence was common and also sowed the seeds for repeated rounds of ethnic conflict. Peace deal was often come out of a certain balance of power, but in this case the peace deal arguably worsened the situation by moving this balance of power too decisively in favour of an autocratic political establishment. Whatever uneasy peace comes at the end of the war can actually be derailed by the implementation of the peace deal. There's been a fair amount of research which indicates that a complete military victory is preferable to a negotiated settlement, at least in terms of preventing conflict recurrence. That said, there are numerous examples of conflict recurrence in cases of victory, as the ongoing conflict in Libya shows. The 2011 Libyan civil war continued at a low simmer after the death of Gaddafi, with a full-on second Libyan civil war breaking out only a few years later. Fragmentation and infighting are common problems, particularly when the victors are a diverse alliance of rebel groups united only by their shared enemy. Even where repeated wars do not break out, there is often simply a transformation of the violence. This is why, in my opinion, research which focuses only on the recurrence of wide-scale, militarised civil conflict is overly myopic. Violence in post-conflict societies can take many forms. 
The forces which negotiated the peace may splinter, creating a fragmented conflict which confounds political settlement. Rebel groups may become criminal cartels, while paramilitary groups often turn on their own communities. This means that not only does violence continue to plague post-conflict countries, but in some cases the violence becomes more intense. In particular, many groups become more predatory as as they direct their violence towards vulnerable people within their own groups rather than their armed and organised rivals. I'll give a couple of quick examples. In terms of reducing political violence, the peace settlement in Northern Ireland can be considered a strong but partial success. Researchers attributed about 158 security-related deaths in the 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement, a high number but a significant reduction compared to the height of the Troubles. Worryingly, however, most of these murders are the result of paramilitary groups turning inwards against their own communities. Punishment beatings and vigilantism are common, with a large degree of infighting over access to criminal sources of profit. Research in the years immediately following the Good Friday Agreement suggested that vigilante violence actually increased, while members of many at-risk communities actually felt more polarised and less safe. The focus on violence which, which can be directly attributed to a political motivation obscures the continuation and evolution of personal intracommunal violence. It is often impossible to separate criminal violence from political violence, with organised crime being embedded within the organisation and ideational legacies of conflict-era political violence. Children and young people continue to be disproportionately victimised, suffering social exclusion and sectarian attacks while being exposed to murals which glorify past violence. Intimate partner violence is shaped by these legacies, while poverty and inequality continue to damage community relations, in certain areas at least. Despite the small number of explicitly political murders or terrorist attacks, there remains a culture of violence in some localised communities, as well as a persistent level of mutual distrust. And as the recent uptick in attacks has shown, peace remains fragile there, even 20 plus years on. The picture in Guatemala is far starker, with the number of murders rising so dramatically in the post-conflict period that they actually outnumber the deaths during the later portion of the war. The huge potential for cocaine profits which drive cartel activity in Central America certainly form part of the explanation for this, but they do not explain the emergence of a peace which in some ways is worse than the war. As in Northern Ireland, armed groups have increasingly developed a predatory relationship with those who they once claimed to protect. However, there has also been a continuing campaign from economic and political elites to disenfranchise and further oppress former rebel areas. Having disarmed in the name of peace, leftists and indigenous groups have been easy prey for criminals and pro-government militias. To give a flavour of this, here is a quote from Lofing, an academic who conducted field research there. The very day after the disarming of the guerrillas, the EGP or the Guerrilla Army of the Poor, in 1997, assailants dressed in the black uniforms of the army's G2 unit robbed and threatened people on the way to the market in the village of Shell. So, this just gives a sort of picture of what happened in the immediate aftermath of the war. Femicide is also rampant in post-war Guatemala, and across Central America, with highly public and very extreme violence against women functioning as a form of social cleansing, as well as a rite of passage for members of street gangs. Many, including Victoria Sanford, have convincingly argued that a clear line can be drawn between the impunity for wartime human rights abuses, which included rape as a weapon of war, 
and the post-conflict sense of impunity for violence against women, especially women from poor or marginalised communities. Both of these conflicts bear the hallmarks of what Edward Azar called protracted social conflict. These conflicts are not easily solved by peace deals, as issues of identity and structural inequality are notoriously difficult to solve. In both cases, violence, both political and personal, have persisted in the post-conflict environment. However, there are clearly differences in how the peace process was conducted which have aggravated the situation in Guatemala. In Northern Ireland, the UK and the Republic of Ireland governments were able to provide some level of guarantee to the different sides, while the European Union and United States could act as neutral brokers. In Guatemala, there was no one to convincingly speak for the rebel groups, with the US-backed government continuing to abuse human rights in the face of a toothless UN response. Northern Ireland instituted a power-sharing arrangement which, while deeply flawed, at least guarantees a degree of political representation for all sides. There have also been attempts to strengthen the rule of law and develop a more politically neutral police force. Guatemala, on the other hand, remains a deeply flawed democracy with a continuing culture of impunity. Although many important judicial and constitutional reforms were targeted in Guatemala, these fell apart due to political infighting and corruption, so the reforms which Guatemala needed were never really implemented. The end of conflict is always a laudable goal, and in Northern Ireland it has certainly been a hugely positive development. However, in terms of reducing violence, it has benefited the security services perhaps more than the most vulnerable communities. In Guatemala, peace has arguably simply redistributed the violence, continuing the conflict but simply on more uneven terms. It is therefore essential that policymakers look beyond narrow measures of political violence and towards building a peace which works for everyone in society. Um, anyway, thank you very much for listening and um, yeah, please get in touch if you have any suggestions for further episodes or any feedback. Again, sorry about my horrible voice today. I put off recording as long as I could, but um, yeah, I'm going on holiday tomorrow, so I just had to go for it. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening and bye.